On today's episode of the Galactic Dads podcast, we have our first show interview with Brian Edward Hill. Brian is the writer of Marvel's Fallen Angels, DC's Batman and the Outsiders, and also the TV show DC's Titans. Brian will share with us some behind-the-scenes looks at these titles and about his writing process as well as how he got started writing in the business. So stick around and get ready for a great show. Five, four, three, two, one. Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? The Galactic Dads Podcast, a podcast by Geeky Dads, talking about all things geek. Dad life? I and beyond language all right we are live with our very first galactic dads podcast interview uh, we decided to go big for the first one so we asked and he said okay so we are going to talk to brian edward hill hi brian hi how are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking. Good, I good. think uh, all the listeners are much more interested in how you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. You know, broadcasting uh, from downtown Los Angeles. So uh, it's actually kind of a moody day today. It was hot for a while, um, but it's started to cool off. And I think it might be raining a little bit. Um, so it's a uh, it's it's nice and nice and chill here on the west side. For most of my listeners are located probably in the Midwest here, uh, St. Louis, which I know you're familiar with. What yeah. is it? What is a chill kind of warm day in downtown LA like in the middle of November? Oh well, you know I grew up in St. Louis, so uh, I, I have the same context. I, you know, we don't really get seasons here in LA. It just kind of cools off a little bit. I'd say when the high hits about seventy. That's when you know you're kind of in late fall, early winter. But we don't get much more than that, though. Like, it doesn't, it, it never gets cold. Like, half my wardrobe I can never wear because I just don't need it. You know, I came from Missouri and I brought out pea coats and overcoats and scarves and gloves, and I just never need any of that stuff. Uh, that sounds like something you'd only get to wear if you were going to do like a quick Instagram photo or something and then take it right. off out the door. Isn't that why people wear clothes anyway now? Quick Instagram photos? I mean, isn't that why people do anything? Just take a quick so. photo and post it? It doesn't. If, look, if you haven't taken a photo of it, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. And I know you're not really eating meals unless you're <laughs> posting those online either. Oh, no, no, no. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, everything must be posted in order for it to count. <laughs> Although in the, the dad life world, it's all chicken nuggets and mac and cheese. So it, it, it doesn't really matter. Hey, nothing wrong with chicken nuggets and mac and cheese, man. I know that you have been writing for quite a while. Uh, so one of the, the very first things I wanted to ask you is how long have you been writing? Uh, one, professionally, and two, just in general at all. Oh, man. Um, well, you know, I went to NYU uh, film school uh, mm. out of high school. Mm. right? So I, uh, I think that's when I started to take writing seriously, mainly because I was too poor in film school to make any effective short films. This was back when you had to shoot film. Oh, like and, real film? Oh, real film. It was $1,000 a minute. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, you needed lights if you wanted to shoot at night. You know, it, it was just, a, it's an expensive art form. Less so now, but certainly then. What I realized was writing, you know, was something that I could just do, right? And you'd see things where people would ha make interesting visual things. You know, uh, you know, you know, you had a lot of interesting visualists back then, but uh, the stories 
weren't, weren't very strong. And my plan was to be a filmmaker. So I didn't know where one would get a script. How was I going to come out of film school and get a script? I couldn't afford to buy a script. I could barely pay tuition, right? So I knew I was going to come mm. out with a bunch of debt. But I always admired you know, writer-directors like, uh, you know, James Cameron, Michael Mann. Um, you know, those folks were... You know, lighthouses for me. I figured, okay, well, I just need to learn how to write my own scripts because that's the only way I'm going to get a piece of material to be able to do something with. So most of, of NYU, I spent just writing uh, screenplays and trying to get all the terrible screenplays out of my system. It took a few more years after school to get the terrible screenplays out of my system. And I stayed in New York and wound up selling a, uh, a movie that eventually became like a Dolph Lundgren film. That was the first, you know, kind of blood that I, that I drew in the fight. Then, you know, from there... Just kind of kept on writing, and I met comic book folks when I was in New York. I was always a big fan of comics. I never knew how to get into the business of comics, right? It, you know, it's very opaque. It is. It's uh, kind of a mystery there. Yeah, definitely. Oh, for sure. Like, you know, I mean, you know, there's a Cooper School if you wanted to draw uh, some books and that kind of thing. But being a writer, I just didn't know how that was going to work. But I met a bunch of artists. Um, beautiful part about New York City, because I was coming from St. Louis to New York. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the thing that I really love about New York is, you know, you can just find the subcultures. You know, folks are just out there. I think part of it has to do with apartments are cramped. You just don't have that much space at home. So you tend not to spend all day in your place. You know, you uh, tend to... That makes sense, yeah. Get out, go to the coffee shop, uh, go to the bar at happy hour with the journal. You know, you just gotta, gotta kind of find space in New York City. And that leads to just places where people of certain art form just congregate. You know, like the all the jazz trumpet players they met over at this bar, and all the Broadway actors they met over at this place, and then all the comic book creators were meeting over at a coffee shop. That was also the coffee shop I would go into, and I would see the drawings. I went over and started chatting with people and you know, made some good friends there. Uh, Nelson Blake II, he's an artist, uh, you know, I met him when I was in New York, and uh, Chris Tabari and Fool Richardson, and like that kind of crew. So, wow. I mean, you went to the right coffee shop. Yeah, it was it was a Starbucks on an Astor Place. And this was before they were turn and burn, right? This was back when right. they encouraged you to buy a $5 cup of coffee and sit there for six hours. And, and artists would come in and they'd bring their um, illumination tables. Uh, with, oh, wow. This is be before Wacom and, and all that. You know, they were yeah. still drawing on paper. And so they would just set it all up, plug it in, boom, just get, get the work done. And I, I would just chat with folks and have conversations about narrative. What you'll find with most artists is they have a story they want to tell. You know, they'll have a, mm -hmm. a journal with images and it, character designs, maybe locations, vehicles, stuff like that. It may not be a story in the strictest sense, but it's a narrative world, right? They, you know, a lot of artists have worlds they want to realize. Right, um, right. So I start talking to those uh, those folks about, you know, how to organize and stuff into stories and, and we became fast friends and um, that introduced me to the business side of comics, but it still took me a very long time to, to start publishing books. I mean, I think I had sold two screenplays and a couple pitches before I, I really got hired to write any comics, you know, and by the time I started writing comics, I kind of already had a career. It was just something I was doing out of love of the art form. Right. So for those listening who may be looking at getting into comic books as a way to tell their stories or just maybe even getting jobs, how many years was it before you kind of got interested, before you were actually working in a the good industry? Five, I would say like a good five or six, you know, um, yeah, I think it went up, from the time that I started seriously writing comic book scripts and trying to get people to read my work and all of that, I would say it was a good five years before uh, I wound up on a shelf somewhere. And uh, my first story was a short story in a Top Cow um, trade paperback. Uh, and that's because Ron Mars, who was a mentor of mine, you know, he taught me format and taught me a bunch of other things. He's what a great, a great mentor. Man, that guy's yeah, got good history stories, man. 
Yeah, he's just a fantastic guy. I call him Obi Ron. And um, <laughs> he opened up a opportunity for me to do a short story in a Top Cow book. He was writing a Witchblade. Yeah. And uh, I wrote that. And, you know, that was part of that trade paperback. And that got me started. But then it was still drips. You know, I mean, the way the faucet runs in, in this business is, you know, it, it drips and then it flows. And then if you're lucky, it overflows. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it takes time. I mean, it's it's kind of a war of attrition, you know, and there's not a lot of money in it. You know, when you start, sometimes there's not a lot of money in it ever, even if you're you know doing a bunch of books. All of a sudden it depends on the wind blows. But it it certainly is a uh, it's worthwhile you know, art form to be in. Uh, and uh, it's it's worth you know, taking the time and climbing up the hill. But yeah, it takes it takes real time. And, and this was before social media was really a thing. You know, I'm yeah. betraying my age a little bit here. But when so, I started, it wasn't, you know, Twitter and, 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 you know, the online resources that we have, they weren't really fired up the way that they are now. So, yeah, forgive me if I'm wrong and also betraying a bit of my age as well. But when Ron went over to Top Cow and started expanding the Witchblade universe, that was probably the mid 2000s. Is that correct? Feels right. Yeah. Because right. um, I was in New York. Uh, I went to NYU 95 to 99. And I stuck around New York until um, you know, like the winter of 2001. I was there for 9-11. And, oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I came back to St. Louis to get my bearings, just kind of emotionally and professionally. You know, it was, that was a strange time. It was a dark, strange time. To, especially, you know, when you're still you know, pretty young and you're, you're just out of school. And you're yeah. Pretty impressionable. Yeah. Right. Right. And then suddenly the whole, the paradigm of the world shifts. Yeah. And I think it was in St. Louis when, when I got that first, um, short story thing done. Uh, my wife was working at Starbucks at that time. Um, and I wasn't making anything really. Uh, so when I was working and trying to get a portfolio of work together, she was working at Starbucks. Uh, you know, we we're still living in the family home. It was that kind of thing, you know, yeah. broadcasting from the basement as it were. That's and, what I'm um, doing right now. So I, I sympathize very well with that. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. But something, yeah, I think it was like, you know, kind of mid aughts. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, time gets strange in this business, man. Like you, you uh, forget, and it just kind of all coalesces into one cloud of memory. But yeah, if I would try to nail it down, I'd say probably oh five, yeah, oh six. I mean, to me as a fan, that sounds right because I I do remember I was very into Top Cow. Uh, at the time. Is that really how you kind of got involved with Matt Hawkins and started work on Postal? Yeah, you know, I I met Matt through that, you know, Witchblade process. um, And, uh, you know, we kind of got along, uh, you know, fairly well. And, you know, and as my screenwriting would start to pick up and, you know, I sold a script to Universal and I'd moved out to LA and kind of gotten a little bit of a uh, setup going over here. He and I would just go out and get a cup of coffee every now and then, and we would just talk about you know what was going on, what he working on, stuff I would want to do, and I, and I always figure something just comes up organically. I don't do a lot of pitching, to be honest. Um, most of the, most of the work that you see me do just happens for me just trading emails with an editor or something, musing about a thing. And I got a notion, you know, but I don't do a lot of formalized pitching in comics. And Matt, one day we're we're having a cup of coffee in Culver City, uh, and he starts talking to me about this idea he had about a town full of criminals. And, um, the, the mailman was the mayor's son, um, but he was on the Asperger spectrum, and um, he was looking into a murder, and, and you know, it, it shapes, you know. Right, um, yeah. You know, nothing, nothing firm, firm, but he asked me, you know, hey, is that interesting to you? 
so I told him, well, yeah, potentially. Let me um, let me take it and put it in the oven and, and see what I can do. So I went home that night and you know poured a glass of Johnny Walker and put some uh, some music on. It's kind always of, a great start. Yeah, yeah. I just riffed out a couple pieces. Yeah. You know, thought about "In Cold Blood" by Truman Capote. Sort of thought about noir crime elements and um, maybe a slight touch of the occult. You know, just kind of getting into that vibe and put together a. Uh, you know, this is sort of what I do and sent to Matt and he liked it. And we co-wrote the first trade, which I think is four issues. And then I might have been the first two trades we co-wrote. Uh, and then, yeah, and then the third trade, I, I just picked it up and went solo. I mean, you kind of see, he saw where I was going and I had, you know, the characters rounded out and built. And uh, he sort of took his hands off the wheel and let me kind of finish out the, the narrative. But yeah, that, that was the first ongoing thing, Postal, that I did. And, and I did what we call season one. I think it was about 25 issues. Uh, we're into season two now. So we have, uh, I think we're maybe six issues in of that. That's out there on the shelves right now. But uh, yeah, yeah. And that, you know, and that kept me in the game. You know, I mean, you know, for those who are listening to this that want to create comic books, especially for the right comics, uh, a big part of it is just being around for a while. Yeah, it's the hardest part uh, about being a new writer into uh, the business of writing is getting people to read your work. Because right. people just yeah. don't, you know, people are slow to read something if they have no context at all, right? Uh Right. You take take a thing and put Stephen King's name on it, you know, or you put, you know, Joe Smith's name on it. Well, people are going to read the Stephen King thing. Same thing. Right. And when they read it, if it has Stephen King on it, they're probably going to read it and, and see it in the best light. Uh, Joe Smith might get a page full of notes back. Right. Right. So it is very subjective writing. It, it's not entirely objective, you know, and, and it's not like, oh, you can draw a picture of Captain America. Cool. You should draw Captain America. You know, this is. You know, oh, you can do panel work of Batman. Well, we should give you a Batman comic book. Art can be uh, pretty objective, but writing tends to be very subjective. So context is w- what matters. And by being around a lot and sharing your work and getting into the cultural conversation kind of any way you can, it gives context to your work. You know, people don't feel like they're reading something from a stranger. And even though Postal wasn't blowing the doors off in terms of sales, I mean, it was a small book from one of the smaller comic book companies. I think because it was just out and continually getting reviews, um, people had heard of it if they hadn't read it. People had heard of me if they hadn't read me. But that gave context to me. Uh, So when I had an original idea or I was talking to somebody from Marvel or DC, uh, um, you know, boom, what have you, I didn't feel like it was just coming from, you know, someone they'd never heard of before. And I'd also started doing Hollywood stuff. And that always helps. You get a little little Hollywood pixie dust on your shoulders and then suddenly people look at you in a better light. Yeah, it really takes you places, I'm sure, in the comic book world for sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's a cross-pollination now between comics and, you know, media. Um, uh, having a foot in both worlds, I think, kind of makes each world a little more malleable for you, you know, uh, because in the film TV side, they say, oh, you're writing comic book. Comic books are the thing now. And then on the comic book side, oh, you know, you write TV and films. Well, that's where the bully pulpit is. So we're interested right. in getting closer to that. You know, and you just you learn how to leverage it. Like a lot of things in life, you, you know, you learn how to leverage your strengths and, you know, kind of bury your weaknesses. You know, just real quick, I wanted to touch on something I found interesting is that you made the comment in the TV film world. They go, oh, you write comic books. That's kind of the thing now. Could you imagine when you went to NYU starting out that that would be something that you could ever leverage into the film world? Yeah, you know, I I couldn't have. Um, I loved comics uh, while I was in NYU. And I, um, for one of my 
courses, I had to teach a class. And I taught a class about Superman and Batman and the American diaspora, Depression-era heroes and that kind of thing. I was always really interested in the fiction. But it mm -hmm. felt very separate. Um, you know, it didn't feel like uh, those two worlds were going to align that often. You know, you get an 89 Batman, you know, you get that. You know, you get Blade right. or something. But it, it always felt like there were a couple outlier films that would do well. And other films would try to capitalize on that. And then they wouldn't. Uh, and then they would kind of go away, you know, and, and rinse and repeat. You know, a few years later, they try to warm something back up. I thought I would be uh, kind of an independent filmmaker. Uh, making like character driven, you know, thrillers and, and that sort of thing. I never really considered that I would be a commercial storyteller. That wasn't really in my head. You know, I thought I'd be making, you know, $3 million movies, uh, you know, in the New York City streets, you know, for a smaller audience. But yeah, the way it's, uh, it's, I mean, I, the, the first real feeling of the changeover happened with the Nolan film. I was taking meetings at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, not during Begins and Dark Knight. I didn't really start to get going until Dark Knight Rises, you know, that space between. Mm -hmm. But there was certainly a, a shift in how people were regarding comics and the potential of them to be things. And then uh, the most recent, I think, big paradigm shift is probably Black Panther, because uh, that was a couple things. It was confirmation that a non, you know, quote unquote, A-list comic character could bring in a huge bounty in the box office. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and then me being uh, a black creator, you know, who works in comics, you start to get aligned with that stuff in the minds of the executives, you know, uh, uh, and that that helps, you know, so it's it's very organic. Um, and like, I think now the, the next seismic shift is probably Todd Phillips's Joker. I don't yeah. know what the fallout is going to be in that movie, but I think um, there's going to be a uh, an effect, you know, uh, of, of that film and, and maybe a understanding that, oh, you know, we, we don't have to think about setting up the whole universe in one movie and, and, you know, we can make something a little more bespoke and we can make something adult. You know, it's, it's hard to do adult drama in theaters because adults don't go. They stay home. They watch HBO. So uh, I am becoming an adult i am staying home more and more right. yeah yeah you know and and joker kind of trojan horse an adult drama uh and made a billion dollars doing it right and not to say that's that that's the only way or a superior way i mean there's nothing wrong with that man the wasp love that film too but um, i think it's just the surprising way from where we are in the climate now yeah, just figuring, you know, it's all about figuring out how to express yourself. You know, if you want to draw, you know, you want to, you want to do a great painting, you got to find a patron and put it on the Sistine Chapel, right? You know, and yeah. so it's the problem of art and revenue that's existed since commerce has existed. It's how do we find a way to uh, get the fiscal support for what we want to express while maintaining the sanctity of, of the art we're trying to create. Yeah, that's actually something, you know, just your average everyday moviegoer or even your casual comic book reader doesn't really think about. I think it's great just to hear you verbalize those types of things. So well, I'm really... weird, so I think about a lot of things people don't think about. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, anybody who follows you on Instagram or Twitter will realize that you probably think slightly different than a lot of other folks. You know, just kind of looking at the, what was it today, the... Oh, it's not Willem Dafoe. Forgive me, I'm completely blanking. Was that the, uh, with uh, Gary Oldman? Yes, that's it. Yeah. How I could mistake Gary Oldman. But yeah, and uh, who was the young actress? He's with Mila Jovovich. Mila Jovovich, yep. Yeah. yep. And that is from years ago, years and years ago. And that's the thing that you're just kind of in that mood today, which I, oh, I well, find I a, pretty fascinating. I have a huge uh, reference source of fashion advertising um, on my hard drive. And I refer to it often. Um, in my work to set mood and tone. I, images help me figure my way into a narrative, 
you know, I think in images. I kind of always have thought in images. Uh, so I keep these these kind of reference files there together. And there was a brief time after NYU where I thought I was going to be a fashion photographer. That was kind of the goal. Like uh, I, we had a photo uh, course we took in school and I responded well to it. And there used to be these tables on uh, West 4th Street which is in the West Village. It's kind of like the, the most bohemian, I think, section of Manhattan, or at least it was then. And on these tables, people would just sell the most random things. You know, I mean, New Yorkers will figure out a way to sell anything to you. And some of what they would sell would be corporate, you know, pitch packets or, or style guides, things that you wouldn't really see, you know, to the given to the consumer, but there were still like powerful images there and all of that. And I sort of picked those up. I just, you know, liked the images a lot. And one of the photographers that was in this stuff was a, a fellow named Peter Lindbergh, who had passed away recently. And Lindbergh's work just really struck me in its honesty um, and uh, in its kind of narrative sensibility, even though we're talking about a single still image. So <laughs> I was really into that. And I thought maybe that'd be a place I can go into, you know, and so I still have a deep interest in that stuff. If you go to my Instagram and scroll down a bit, you'll see some of my portrait work that's that's up there. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm an amalgam of a lot of different forces. You know, uh, it's uh, people have different ways in on me. You know, some people, they know me through comics, you know, here in Hollywood land, they know me through, you know, screenwriting and then television, you know, uh, but I've also worked a bit, you know, with theater projects and, uh, you know, straight visual art, you know, write a little bit of music. So I try to keep those, I guess, seemingly disparate interests alive um, because I think it all helps make the individual works more unique. You know, it kind of gives me a different voice, different way in, different way to express. I mean, that's just... Sounds like a modern day renaissance, man. I mean, just well, that would that would only be true if I was great at everything. <laughs> so, Jack of all trades, master yeah, yeah. of none. I understand. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know, it's a, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say I'm a, a renaissance man, but I, I definitely do have a variety of interests. Um, and uh, writing has become the way I pay my my bills and make my bones with it. Uh, but yeah, there's like a, certainly other things that I'm interested in, and and you know, little artistic things that I pursue on my own time. So you're a man who writes a great many things. You pursue these otherwise artistic passions throughout your free time. One of the things I really wanted to ask you, because I myself am a writer, but nowhere near to the extent that, of course, you are. But uh, one of the things I find very distracting is Twitter. Can't open my laptop and try and type away and have Twitter up at the same time, or even my phone out, to be honest. Sure, uh, sure. So a great question for me is more about your craft and writing and how you, you get things produced and out, especially when you work in industry where deadlines are very real. How do you, one, get your work out on time and consistently and at such volume? And then two, how are you also still so engaged on Twitter and with fans and people who talk to you? Uh, how do you find time for both? Well, the first thing I want to say is if you're writing, you're a writer. So okay. you say you're writing then you're a writer. And at that point, we're all, we're all the same. Um, but to answer your question, you know, I, honestly, part of it has to do with the time zone. Right? Ah, indeed. Uh, because, you know, I'm, I'm on the West Coast, right? So I wake up around 5, 5.30. Uh, I usually go on four or five mile walk every morning just to kind of clear my head, uh, get a sense of the world and uh, come back in and you know, it might be around six forty-five, seven, or something, and then you got to fire up the uh, the Keurig and make a cup of coffee. So a lot of my Twitter stuff is just me waking up with a cup of coffee, haven't even gotten started on the day yet. Um, but right. for the rest of the of the country, you know, they're two, three, four hours in 
um, to their day. So for me, just getting the gears going, you know, it, people are already kind of up and at it. And, you know, and then I kind of I, I look at social media a little bit over coffee time and I'm kind of use that to warm up the mind. You know, and then you just shut it off and, and get to work. You know, sometimes I'll throw it off if I'm if I want to take a little bit of a break, but I don't want to leave the desk. You know, I don't want to uh-huh. get wrapped up in something else. I'll do that. But yeah, you just kind of manage it. And I'll, and I'll shut it off and not be around for a while, too, uh, depending on how busy I am. And when it comes to deadlines, well, you know, you just kind of got to lock yourself in and do it. I, I'm, I, I always know a better way to do it and I never do it that way. Like, I should nibble at everything a little bit every day, but that's never how I work. Uh, I tend to, um, like, fully immerse myself into a thing and, and get it done and then move on to the next thing. And sometimes that can be a little arduous um, because I'll underestimate how long it might take to do something and leads to some late nights. One of the things that helps me, just technique-wise, is uh, everything I work on, I kind of build a playlist for, like a music playlist. Oh, okay. So if I need to get back into that headspace, I just listen to the music, and it gets me there. Because I, I'm, I'm very like, sort of experiential when it comes to writing. I, I like to kind of live in it a little bit and kind of feel it. Uh, it's almost like I'm documenting what's playing in my head more than I feel like I'm you know, putting words in the page. It can be difficult when you're working on things that feel very different, right? Like if I'm doing you know, Angel on the same day that I'm writing Titans, for instance, that can be a little tricky because those two worlds feel very differently. So being able to lock them into a music playlist, you know, snaps me from one thing to the other. Like I'm working on a stage play right now, which is, okay. uh, you know, and it's just, you know, it's not a genre. Appeal. Well, it's got like, a, I guess, a, a slightly supernatural bend to it, but it's not a high genre piece. Um, you know, it's just two characters in one location and a pretty intense conversation, right? Which is very different than writing Batman and the Outsiders. Oh, certainly, yeah. You know, having music uh, attached to each of those endeavors allows me to be able to do two hours of this, two hours of that, three hours of that, you know what I mean? And and you can can make that, you can flow between those projects a little bit easier. Yeah, it makes it a little easier to shift mindsets and get back into the different characters and settings and things. That makes sense. Yeah, I'm I'm married, but I have no kids, right? So I, I don't have a reason to have to go to sleep you know, I can stay up if I got to stay up. I can sleep in if I got to, you know, so so that also helps. I don't have to be on that same, you know, kind of schedule. Um, and some nights I just, you know, I'm riding up until the sun rises and then I sleep and wake up at noon, you know, and get, you know, so, you know, you kind of work it all out that way too. I got to tell you that at first I was just impressed with your work and now I'm just straight up envious uh, to be able to stay up all night and sleep till noon is just a mind blowing thing to a dad like me. Oh, like they say, it's totally worth it. But it just right now, you the way you're talking reminds me a lot of my uh, my college days. You know, of course, there's the ways you should do things and the ways you actually end up doing them, which means whenever deadlines show up, you just the night before get it done. So I can well, sympathize. And, and uh, you know, for those listening to this that don't have the, you know, the ability to you know, set their own schedule continually. What I, what I offer is this. Don't think about the whole of the work, right? Don't think about the whole novel. Don't think about the whole screenplay. Don't think about the whole graphic novel script or comic book issue script. Figure out an acceptable amount of productivity that you can hit every day. Uh, and that becomes your, your schedule. That becomes uh, your rate of creation, right? So if you know, well, I can comfortably write five pages of a comic book in 90 minutes. And I'm just making those numbers up, 
Um, but mm-hmm. let's just say a person can do that. Okay. Well, if you have 90 minutes a day that you can dedicate to it, then, you know, you can do five pages of a comic book script a day. Right. right. And, and then that, you know, that you have four days, you have 20 pages, you've got an issue, at least a draft of an issue done. Right. So if you break things up into smaller parts and, and don't worry about having to do the whole thing, right. If you, you know, the thing when I, I, I'm not a writing teacher. Uh, but I do have folks that I, you know, kind of help with some writing issues and, and that sort of thing. But I will not posture that I am some kind of writing instructor. I'm not. But what I, what I, tell, what I tell people is, you know, if you want to write a novel, don't worry about the novel. You know, just think about a page a day. And if you write a page uh, starting with your birthday, you know, on your next birthday, you can probably gift yourself a first draft of your book. That is an uh, excellent way to look at it. Right. It's just one page a day, you know, and you can do a page. Um, you can sneak away and get time to do a page. Maybe that's a little bit less, you know, maybe you don't watch the game, you know, right. or you don't see the whole game. Maybe you only see the second half, right? You tune in after halftime or, or you, you don't uh, binge the whole show. You, you save an episode right. for tomorrow or you don't binge the whole show. You save an episode for tomorrow, you know, or maybe you, you know, you fight for an extra 45 minutes uh, before you turn in. But, you know, if you can do one page a day, then you, you know, you kind of build it up, right? It, it, it adds up, you know, the novel takes care of itself. It's like football. Like, don't worry about a touchdown, get a first down, you get a first down, touchdowns take care of themselves. Really? If that doesn't make you a writing teacher, I understand that, but it certainly makes you somebody who's pretty good at helping people with that. So I well, appreciate you, know, you sharing that. Man, you know, it's you, you, We've all fought the same battles. We all go through the same doubts and fears and frustrations. And, and um, I think a lot of people like to, you know, embrace the myth of, of their creation once they get into a, a certain professional, you know, place, once they plateau to a certain level. And um, I don't like to do that. I like to be very honest about, you know, what it was like getting there and the issues and the difficulties. So people know that what they're feeling, they're, they're not feeling it alone. Like everyone goes through it. You know, everyone gets sweaty palms before it starts, right? Everyone right, worries right. about rejection, gets frustrated with rejection and questions whether or not they're making the right choice. And uh, I think, you know, you know, echoing back to our social media conversation, I think social media, it compels us to present ourselves in you know a, a more perfect state, which isn't true, then we also wind up comparing ourselves to other people's presentations, right? So we're taking, we're comparing the vagaries and and uh, all the degrees of complication of our actual lives to the two dimensional presentation of someone's digital life, you know, which can drive you insane. So I like to be as genuine as I can on these platforms, so people can say, oh, okay, cool, this this. You know, this frustration I feel, this, this fear I feel, this isn't just something that's unique to me. Like, I can still charge through this and I can still get to where I want to go. Yeah, excellent. Very few people put up kind of the uh, the outtakes of their life. Everyone's throwing up the highlight reel or perceived highlight reel on their socials. That does make a lot of sense. And we, we're glad there are some people sharing the realness out there. That's always very helpful. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's just, it's... It's just good to to see reflections and and folks and and that then then you don't see yourself in like a binary state of I'm either this or not. It's much more like a continuum, right? Like degrees of the journey, you know. And and we're all along that timeline on a different spot, but it's a path. It's not a a singular threshold you walk through and then suddenly you are you know, that thing you want it to be, it's, it all starts with the small steps and, 
you know, leads to the, the accomplishments and hopefully larger accomplishments and from that more opportunities and all of that. But if you see yourself as walking a path that you're part of a process, a, the same kind of process that people you admire, not to say that I'm admired, but like the people you see that are a little bit further along on that path are able to, to you know, are, are sort of doing, then you'd like recognize like, oh, okay, I'm not some binary opposite. I'm just at the beginning. Or, um, you know, I'm in the second quarter of this. Okay, cool. I can keep going because I know I'm going to get to the middle and hopefully I'll get to the end. So you did mention in there you're talking about once you reach certain points or a little bit of accomplishment, you get more opportunities and then those lead to other opportunities. One of the things that I think right now is pretty impressive and pretty big in the comic book world is this this new Dawn of X and X-Men yeah, uh, and sure. the, the relaunch of those titles. And I'm guilty. I reached out and asked you if you'd be kind enough to be on the show, probably right after I closed the back cover of Fallen Angels number one. Oh, oh right. On. Oh, yeah, which is the last debut title in the Dawn of X line. So, what I wanted to ask as far as opportunities and things, and you slightly may have answered this earlier on saying you don't pitch much, but how did that book come to be? Were you kind of just spitting ideas or emails back and forth with the editors and going, Hey, I think this might work with, with that particular concept of what's going on over there. Or how did fallen angels get into our hands? Well, it was pretty organic. I, I had met Jonathan Hickman years ago after I had published a original book uh, called Romulus. That was a four issue book through image. Uh, it was one of my first original works in the comics. It might be my first original work. Um, and so I'd met Hickman on a stage. We were in some Portland event. I forget what it was. Maybe the Image Expo or something like that. And, okay. Uh, I always liked his work. Um, and in conversation, I appreciated his demeanor and his thoughtfulness. So, you know, we became, you know, we became friends. Uh, uh, you know, we would, you know, throw emails back and forth from time to time. And uh, I think I interviewed him uh, about a book that he had done when I was doing um, some, like, not, I wouldn't say it was journalism, but I was writing for a couple comic book websites. I know that pain. I'm, uh, I'm doing a few of those myself. Well, you know, it's, it's good. It gets you in the culture, right? It adds Absolutely. more context. Right? Absolutely. That's like we were talking about before. And I always wanted to figure out some thing that I could uh, work with Jonathan on. And, uh, you know, he gave me a call and said he was doing this X-Men initiative and asked me if I'd like to be a part of it. And I didn't say yes immediately because I didn't know what that would entail. Um, okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, he said, hey, you know, you can approach it the way you want to approach it. You know, you can you can still write a Bryant Hill story in what I'm doing, in essence. So I, I I heard what other people were doing because some of those other books had already been set before I got into the mix. Uh, and I, I you know I just kind of raised my hand and asked, well, what's going on with uh, with Quanon, with with Psylocke? I know I know Elizabeth is now Captain Britain, but what's happening with with Quanon? And and no one really had an answer. You know, they didn't really have a, they didn't really know. And and I, I kind of I responded to wanting to, you know, write her and flesh her out a little bit. Uh, and from that came this idea about paradise and, and peace and the role that warriors play in it, redemption, like kind of these sort of thing. I saw the outlines for the other books and I saw how strong they were. You know, they were these kind of rollicking, you know, witty action adventure stories that I really admired. And I didn't want to also be that because I felt like I would just be offering a diminished version of things you could get in other places. 
But I thought it'd be interesting if Fallen Angels could be something of a counterpoint book, you know, something that was a little more meditative, a little more philosophical, a little darker, but hopefully um, layered, you know, rich with, with, with ideas um, that would not challenge the reader, but not tell the reader how they were going to feel about all of it. You know, like they have a little ambiguity there uh, and, and ideas of evolution, you know, uh, and I talked about, well, what happens in the vacuum uh, when mutants, you know, remove themselves from the human world, evolution won't stop. Um, you know, what will take their place you know, and what's the future of homo sapiens? Uh, uh, and how's that factor? And so like all those ideas, and it was just a lot of, you know, again, like emailing, you know, kind of putting some more meat in the bone, refining it and all of that. And eventually, um, you know, I landed on something that I felt like I could get excited about writing and Marvel, uh, you know, liked what I was doing and, uh, and, and said, yeah, go ahead and do that. And that's kind of where it all sort of came from. The way we talk about how some of these conversations come out organically, I swear I wrote questions out beforehand. And what you just said basically answered a question like verbatim. Like, how do you come up with the idea of mutants who are now at peace on island not being able to be at peace? And having to go back out and find something. Not so much Quanin or Psylocke, who seems drawn off the island, but Laura and Cable, you know, X-23 just kind of needing to take part in a fight, even though well, they could, they do face, they have the option of peace at the moment, barring the events of X-Force number one. But I just thought well, those that are that, the, the, the warrior characters, you know, like, it's, I am a lapsed martial artist. I used to be fairly serious about, uh, uh, martial arts and you know and I, I still kind of keep up the technique but i'm nowhere you know i'm not doing like it was doing before you would have thought i was trying to be batman 10 years ago but aren't you aren't we all aren't in we our all, own way right? in our own way are we all but you know there's there's a when when you live your life in uh, a martial context you have a commonality with others who do the same and your perspective is a little different and it's hard to explain that to people who aren't like that. So when you look at Cable or Laura, Quanon, you know, these are characters that have that in common, that, that share that common denominator uh, of looking at, at, at the world in terms of multiple battlefields, victories won and lost. And then I also thought a lot about, you know, the, the role of soldiers in peace. I, I think in a, in a higher ethical sense, what every warrior would want is to be obsolete because you'd have a world without war indeed but yeah. in that world where do you fit in so in paradise what is the purpose of of being a warrior you know how do you how do you deal with bliss you know how do you deal with uh, a place without threat and consequence when threat and consequence have been such a critical part of your identity for so long you know, was sort of thinking about those issues, wanting to uh, explore that. And, and it's really a book, and a lot of my stories are about the same thing. You know, it, it, a lot of my stories are about characters that are you know, making lemonade from their lemons and trying to find purpose. So that was uh, uh, still the foundation of Fallen Angels. You know, I, I, I approach that, that, that idea in different ways, and I come to different conclusions about it, because I'm still sort of wrestling with whatever a truth may be about it, trying to find like an objective truth in it. And I still haven't found one. So... Um, it felt like a good good way to explore that, and and, the, and what Jonathan had done with X Men, with how rich and philosophical his writing is, uh, he had created the fertile ground to be able to grow a story like that. I think I would have to agree with you there. I mean, there's 
There's a reason the X-Men's doing so well right now. It's got a lot to do with uh, Jonathan Hickman, but um, I was surprised as a fan and both as somebody who tries to think creatively that we have so many different stories spinning out of House of X and Powers of X. Uh, firstly, Marauders was a huge surprise just in concept, but then once you read it and, and begin to see that world, it seems to really work. And almost in the same same vein is Fallen Angels, which at first when that was solicited, I was trying to figure out what are we doing with this book? And then having read it and now even more so hearing from you, it seems like it just is the perfect time to get that book. So I think we're very fortunate as fans uh, to have these types of stories and especially with characters like Quanin or uh, that you almost kind of forgot about who go by the wayside. But now, yeah, with- you know, it's, I, I, to be honest, like I didn't, want people to forget about her. I have friends that are, um, you know, just like really into the character. You know, I have uh, Asian friends that identify with her because uh, there aren't that many Asian superheroes really to identify with, you know, non-Asian friends that just find found her interesting and compelling in different ways and her severity and all of that. I just thought it was a character of, of value. Um, uh, and I knew the book could be polarizing. You know, I, I knew it was going to sound strange and ultimately be a little strange, but I didn't mind. The The great thing about where I am, what I'm really grateful for is because comics aren't a primary revenue stream for me. You know, I don't do comics for the money. I do them because of creative interest. I, I don't have to play with the safety on, you know, like I can... I can take some risks and if things don't work, they don't work. Uh, but I try to make sure everything is thoughtful. And since the, I saw the rest of the books were so strong and doing what they wanted to do, I felt like, Oh yeah, I can take a little risk here and, and make kind of this weird thing, um, that, uh, you know, hopefully will speak to the people it speaks to in a, in a more resonant way. But, but yeah, you know, I mean, I'm a weird bird when it comes to superhero comics. I know I do quite a few of them, but I, I'm just not, hardwired i think in the same way you know like i i approach things pretty differently um and it's interesting for me creatively to do it because it's sort of takes me out of comfort zones um but the result is sometimes you know you get like a weird book (laughs) yeah but sometimes those weird books are the best books another case in point though you may be familiar maybe not but you know donny kate's silver surfer black just speaking purely artistically at that such a weird and strange book, but it works. And I think that's a risk worth taking and much yeah, in the same Donnie, vein as I'm, you know, Donnie's one of the people that I look at and admire a lot. You know, I, I remember reading God country and, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it felt like such a personal work, you know, and it was rare, you know, it's rare that I can read something and yeah, it's a, you know, cool concept and, you know, Valifax, magic swords and all of that stuff. But it also felt very personal. You know, and you could tell that it was about relation, like a relationship he had to some of those issues. Uh, and I've always admired that about storytellers and stories when they can, you know, uh, be raw, you know, kind of in, in the work. And he's able to do that very, very well and really studies the form and loves the form. Um, and he's such a positive guy, too. You know, Donnie has reached out to me on multiple occasions and, you know, and just said he liked the thing that I wrote. You know, and just sort of checked in and, and is, you know, how are you? And I read this book. I thought it was really cool. And, you know, so he's definitely a guy that I, um, uh, I'm glad to have around. 
And uh, I think he deserves every ounce of success that he's having right now um, because he's just one of those kind of guiding forces, I think, in the media. It's good to know that there's just that positive camaraderie uh, between creators. I mean, that's something that you always just want to hear. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know a lot of comic book creators, to be honest. Uh, I am, and it's mo- mostly because I don't get to go to a lot of conventions because of my schedule, you know, because I'm producing right. television in a half a year, uh, every right. year. So Because you're Hollywood, right? Well, you know, because I work in Hollywood. You know? uh, <laughs> fair fair enough. Forgive know, me. I, I tell people I, I'm successful enough to live in Los Angeles. I'm not successful enough to not have to. Uh, <laughs> right. But, uh so I, I, I can't, you know, I don't go to a lot of cons, um, uh, but I, you know, I, you know, people digitally, like you, you know, emails and, and see people on social media, but in many ways, I still feel like a stranger to the, to the culture of comics. Um, I'm still trying to figure out, you know, where, where I fit in and all of it and how long I should fit in and those sorts of, sorts of things. But yeah, I mean, in general, I think creators support other creators because, you know, everyone knows how hard it is to push the ball up the hill. So yeah. everyone's on that same path that you were talking about earlier just yeah. different spots on it yeah you know and and it's easy with all the hollywood hubbub and the things that get turned into things and they get turned into things to get windswept in all of this you know i'm a rock star creator nonsense but most of the creators i know that endure are people that sit down at the desk every day and do the work uh and that's the most important thing uh and um, those folks I, I seek out, you know, the Phil Hester's of the world, the Ron Mars's of the world, yeah. the, the Marjorie Lou's of the world, Kelly Sue DeConnick, like these folks, these are people that I seek out and I ask advice uh, of from time to time and, you know, just try to, you know, benefit from their experience as much as I can. Never discount the continuously working creators, right. whether or not they're running crossovers or, you know, writing TV I feel that that does transition nicely since we did mention writing TV and I know there are some people who'd be very mad at me if I didn't ask. Mm. Uh, you're, you were a writer on episodes of Titans and now are you story director this season? Oh, okay. So let me explain to people who don't know how all these different television rankings work. That would um, be me. Yeah. As you, so when you start writing television, you're called a staff writer. Uh, and every year that you write on uh, a show, ideally you get promoted up the chain a bit. And, you know, ultimately you're looking at executive producer and that sort of deal. So if you see executive story editor on my name, uh, on Titans, that just means that, you know, I'm in my third year of TV. And so I have that rank. I mean, you can look at that like Lieutenant or something, right? Gotcha. in, in practice, with Titans specifically, because every show is unique, it's, every show is its own ecosystem, but with Titans, there aren't that many of us. Uh, I think there's about nine of us together. And that means that we're all sort of doing things for each other all the time. We're all contributing you know, to everything in some form. I have a great relationship with Greg Walker, the showrunner of Titans, uh, with Akiva and Jeff Johns, you know, and... So it really is like a collective uh, sort of deal. But yeah, so each writer in the writer's room will likely get assigned a script to write. And that will be, you know, at least one. And that will be your your episode. So I do that. And then the executive story editor bit, that's just a fancy name given to part of my responsibility is to look at the overall vision of the season. You know, what the showrunner wants to do, where they want to go, make sure all the pieces are fitting to... um, to help realize their vision, you know, uh, uh, in television, 
you know, your job is to help your showrunner express what they want to express. In Greg Walker, we have a really generous showrunner that also wants us to vehicle our own truth into the stories where we can, right? Um, that so, must be yeah. so freeing. Yeah. It is. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very pleasant room. Um, it's not contentious. We're, we're all sort of kind and friends with each other. And that's not always the case. I mean, I know people that are working on shows, I won't name them, but where the rooms are very contentious and very political uh, and the knives are out constantly um, for people. And, you know, it can be very stressful. Um, I'm very grateful to have an environment where I like going to work. I like the people I work with and I like the, the content that we're producing. I do have to say, as a fan, it is good content. I mean, that show, I'm not sure quite was out I was expecting from Titans, but wow, you guys have delivered. So excellent work there. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, it's, it's tricky. You know, it's, um, uh, I didn't know what to expect from it when I started working on it either. You know, I'd read the pilot. Uh, mm-hmm. And when I read the pilot before I got the job, I didn't know what it was. I just saw Titans and I thought it was something based on, you know, like Greek gods or something, you know, like it's gonna be like some Roman history thing, you know, I don't know what it was. And then I opened up and read the first few pages and, and I was like, oh, this is Dick Grayson. Oh, this is Titans Titans. Oh, there um, we go. And I, uh, you know, I read through it and was like, oh, 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 okay, this is okay. And then I met with Jeff Johns. Uh, he was, you know, very kind and gracious and, and supportive. I think he was somewhat familiar with my work because I had done a smattering of work for DC, I think, before then. But he wasn't intimately familiar with it. But, you know, I, I, I like Jeff's kind of unassuming, down-to-earth demeanor, which I respond to being, you know, a Missouri boy like I am. And, um, yeah, it's met folks and jumped on it, but yeah, you know, you never know what things are going to turn into and how people are going to take things. But, um, I, I'm just really happy that people do seem to be connecting with it and, and enjoying it. And, uh, it's, uh, it, it feels good to be part of something that, you know, people seem to enjoy and care about. Yeah. It, uh, also feels good to see that on the screen, uh, from my end. So now that you're into it and you have the Titans and they do have kind of a rich comic book history, some of the ideas that come through, which I know you can't go in depth for what's coming or anything like that, of course. But the question I have to ask is that that source material, obviously, you're pulling from with the Judas contract and other classic Titan storylines. But the ideas to get Batman in the season finale, I mean, that was kind of a something that for a lot of fans you don't expect to see uh sure to be surprised like that and to be so pleasantly surprised uh takes a lot of effort i think on the the creative side so where does an idea like that come from per se is that like a collaborative effort in the writer's room or is that just there are a lot of discussions about how can we use the things in unique ways that are still true to the nature of the things and that's a lot of it you know that's where a lot of it comes from. It's just trying to figure out a way to, to give people, you know, the iconic moments and archetypes and archetypal characters they'd like to see, but also present them with a freshness, you know, uh, try, try to find a new angle on things. You know, um, Akiva uh, Goldsman, mm-hmm. he talks about stories like an object, like a physical object that you walk around, you turn upside down, you look at it from different angles and try to find sort of different things. in it. And when you do that, you know, you say, oh, what, what if he did this instead of that? What if we went left instead of right? Or what if we, you know, unearthed this aspect of the character presented like that? So a lot of it comes from just those organic conversations about 
trying to find a way to satisfy a an audience that is very fluent in how these stories are told and how these things are woven and wanting to make sure that we can provide a unique experience to them when they've got so many different stories that are in the same genre, you know, uh, and we don't oh, want to just mm-hmm. do the, the same, same, you know, we want to kind of figure out a way to do things a little differently, but also not just different for the sake of being different, right. You know, different in service of being able to explore subtext that's already present within the mythology that maybe hasn't gotten a lot of light. I mean, it's similar, honestly, to Fallen Angels. Like, you know, what, I, what I'm doing isn't really a matter of invention uh, as much as it's a matter of giving attention to things that maybe haven't gotten a lot of attention, but they're sort of there in, mm-hmm. inside of it. Um, and uh, uh, that's, but that's always the trick when you're working with, you know, characters that aren't original. When you're working with your own characters, you can do whatever you want, and you're setting the tone. You know, you're Matthew Weiner, you're doing Mad Men. Don Draper can do whatever you want him to do. Yeah. Because Don Draper is, is your creation, right? You are the architect of a Don Draper experience. When you're working on these established characters, there you're working inside of legacy in some way. Uh, hey. And I like to, and I'm a little fuddy duddy, you know, I'm a little old fashioned, okay boomer, and all that. Uh, <laughs> only 42, but. I wouldn't say that I would throw you towards the boomer aspect. <laughs> well, but I, I do like to work with what's gone before, you know, and like Legacy. the Fallen Angels, like you, you know, I, I referenced the Jim Lee panel where Psylocke rams the psionic knife into, my, into Magneto's head, right? Like, you know, sort of evoking the memory of that, even though she wasn't in charge of the body at that time, right? But it's, yeah, I... I I think there is an urge in popular culture to take a sledgehammer to everything that's come before. I see the excitement in that, and I see the opportunity that can come from doing that. But sometimes you can deconstruct things so much that you've destroyed what worked about the thing, right? you got to be very careful. Um, That makes perfect sense. And I'm always trying to balance the postmodern need to deconstruct with the mythological, anthropological need to have constructionist mythology and how all of these things kind of work together. It's always a balance. I think there's probably a pretty good way to gauge that in the comic book community among fans is a lot of people like tradition and stories that have come before, but people always like to see something new. So if you can strike that, just that right chord in between of deconstructing enough, but still keeping that legacy or that, that tradition alive, I think you've really really hit your stride and the fans and sales will tell you so i feel pretty strongly though that somewhere within fallen angels you are hitting that well it's 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 a very you know thank you uh uh for that it's it's a very experimental book and it's a thoughtful experiment i don't think it's a reckless one but i'm certainly doing things differently than i've done them before uh and taking things in different directions than i have taken other stories i think that a lot of that has to do with just you know the tone that Hickman set from the beginning. You know, if you're working under a Jonathan Hickman umbrella, I think you have to push yourself, right? Like that's just part of it. Yeah. Otherwise, you're you're you know you're kind of missing the point. And it's I have so much respect for Hickman as a creator. You know, East of West and uh, Black Monday Murders. Just uh, you know, among all the other things, right? Um, so many things. So many good mind. things too. Yeah. Yeah, he has such a powerful mind. Uh, that if I wasn't trying to push myself uh, further um, at some risk, uh, then I think I just wouldn't be um, making the most of the opportunity I get to be able to work uh, in, in the rhythm that he's already created. Excellent. Well, thank you. 
very much for that. I uh, swear I only have like two more questions for you if you'd be so kind to indulge oh, me. Oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, the first one I think is pretty paramount because I've been wondering it for the longest time since I've been following you on Twitter is mm. Miami Vice, when are we going to get something written by you with those characters? <laughs> I think Crockett... Uh, let me tell you, I, uh, I'll just you know be totally transparent about it. So I have been personally pursuing uh, the comic book rights to Miami Vice for a number of years. And it has been difficult because the, the property goes through kind of various uh, development engagements on mm-hmm. the Hollywood end. And so if you're, you know, if you're writing something, Hollywood wants to turn it into a show or a movie and they want to wake it up again. Sometimes they can be very gun shy about having something else out there in culture yeah. because it may conflict with what they're trying to do. Right. And it's, and for, for, and I understand it from a, a rights holder point of view, it's almost a no win scenario because if, if I were to, let's say, get the rights to do <clears throat> many series or a couple years of books, what have you, if they're terrible, I have devalued the IP somewhat. Right. I have, Proven in a way that, ooh, maybe this is the wrong time for this thing. If they're really good, now there's an expectation that whatever they wanted to do is going to somehow tie into what I'm doing, right? And now they have a little headwind where they had no friction before because people are like, oh, is it going to be like this story? Or I really like that story, whatever it is. So it's, uh, uh, it is a little, little tricky. Um, I'm still in process on it. And, and working on it. And hopefully, you know, I can find a way to get parties comfortable, you know, with everything and, and maybe deliver a graphic novel um, or something in that narrative world. Uh, um, it's a definitely something I'd like to do. I have thoughts on it. Um, and I think I've found a way I can make it relevant um, uh, in, in a way that people might not expect. So, you know, who knows? You know, I have friends uh, at, at, you know, NBC Universal uh, uh, who are, um, you know, supportive of, of me trying to do a thing. Um, I also have friends that are trying to develop, you know, so, some of their own stuff, and, and I want their, their stuff to succeed. So we will see. We will see. Well, I'll take that. as That's good enough news uh, for somebody who's very interested in that. Um, actually, also, I, I feel like a question that people don't ever get asked in interviews enough is, do you have any questions for me or the Galactic Dads podcast? Um, well, I, yeah, actually, I, I do have a question for you. Uh, you know, as, as a father, mm-hmm. uh, what role would you like these stories, these genre stories that we love to play in your, your children's lives? Like, you know, um, as a father, how do you look at this stuff? Think about, you know, I don't know, how, you have multiple kids, I don't know how many kids you have, but um, how do you think about how, your your kids are going to embrace this stuff um and is that a concern of yours as you still consume these things but you're also still raising children at the same time i think that that is an excellent question uh because it's one that i have thought about uh, especially very recently and hope to incorporate into an aspect of the show is that i'm i'm a dad i have a two and a half year old little girl uh, so far thank thank you very much uh so far she is my only one uh, the dog doesn't count, <laughs> uh, but we won't tell the dog that. You know, I think about how I want to expose her to just the comic book medium or Star Wars and mm. and things like that. Just any type of 
fandom or right. uh, j- just our, our modern day kind of entertainment stuff and where I lean towards it. Uh, I certainly want her involved uh, because I just think it would be such a great way to bond with her. Mm-hmm. Um, currently, she has Captain Marvel pajamas. Awesome. Uh, and she loves Captain Marvel. We were fortunate enough to be able to go meet Brie Larson at Ace Comic Con. Um, is it, so, okay, so let, let's just let's just pause that for a second. Oh, absolutely. With, with all you know, not all of it, but you know, you see some some negative stuff out there. Isn't Brie just the loveliest person when you get in front of her? She you know? really is. I mean, right, I'm she, not. She really is, right? Like, like, like she's. She's just a genuine, like, nice person. She was, I bumped into her randomly one day in L.A. and, and uh, talked to her about Short Term 12, because I love that movie. I love Short Term 12. And there's a movie, a little movie that she was in, directed by a guy named Dustin Cretton. It's a brilliant movie. If you like Brie Larson, go watch Short Term 12. Where but, can I find that, just out of curiosity? It's, streaming. it's on Amazon, or it might even be on Netflix. Uh, okay, okay. Uh, it wasn't that long ago. I'd say maybe about four or five years ago. It's... It's a uh, it's a little independent movie, but she's so good in it, and you know it just it breaks my heart a little bit to see people uh, online being rude because uh, I remember her being incredibly gracious, uh, and uh, I've heard the same you know for everyone she makes herself available to people like you know the moment that you got to meet her you know with a little girl and, um, I just think it's a great yeah. thing. Well, she was very sweet, and to speak to your your point. She is just an incredibly kind person, you know, in those situations where you, you do like your, you pay your money to stand in line, and you get like a, just a few moments with, with whatever celebrity is at the con. Uh, sure. She still took time. I mean, there were two little girls in front of us who brought her a picture and, and things, and she was very gracious in receiving it. I'm sure they felt very, you know, seen and in the moment, and like they mattered. I think to be able to do that when you've got just, what, 12 hours of the day, decked out to just meeting countless fans. I, I think that's, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. It's hard work too. You know, like, I mean, I haven't, I, I'm not a celebrity, so I don't have that kind of responsibility, but I have uh, some friends that are, and you know, like people, they don't get to have bad days like we do. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, um, you know I, I, uh, I remember I, I was in the elevator. I'm not going to say who it was. I was in the elevator with someone who's largely regarded as, pretty awesome all around and i had a kind of negative experience with the person and um you know someone was like oh well you know i, I i'm sorry to hear that you know they were they were a jerk i'm like i don't know if they're a jerk i have no idea what their day was like you know i yeah uh, you know they i, I could have just caught them at the wrong time you know they could be upset about something and you know that's just how out of how it came back you can meet them again under different circumstances and they could be totally lovely right and it's it's hard to live a life where you know, you're going to come under such scrutiny. And, and, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't have the 24-hour news cycle on social media. You know, we had, like, Entertainment Tonight and MTV, basically. But it was a little more organized. You know, you didn't have... If you said something weird in a press junket, or you might have been a little rude, or even some of your actions might have been misconstrued as rude, it wasn't like you would get all of Twitter talking about it for seven days. You know, right, and they, they wouldn't hashtag you and cancel you because of it. You had a little bit of space to make a course correction, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but but now it's 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 a little trickier now. Um, but anyway, you were saying so. You went to you, you took your daughter to see Bree. She really enjoyed that. Did that she, change your perspective on things, or did it maybe augment something that you already felt? 
You know, for me, just kind of building on that, I think the only other kind of like big celebrity I had met like that was Paul Rudd. Um, oh, right. And he, but I feel like gauging my interaction with him as opposed to other celebrities kind of isn't fair because he just seems like just the nicest guy all yeah. the time. So, and that um, doesn't really answer your question. So I just really. I was like meeting him at the very end of a day when he'd been working all day and he still had people behind me. He still took the time to be nice, sign and, you know, just say right on, man. Thanks for coming out. Like he thanked me, which was always, you know, as a fan, you're like, oh, wow, I matter. Right. But, but um, as far as meeting Bree and then going to the convention and kind of getting my daughter acclimated to that environment, it didn't change any of my perceptions. All it did, I think, is further. Uh, emboldened me to continue doing things like that and more things uh, just to, to build that relationship. So as my daughter grows and builds memories and memories with dad will be, yeah, we did the comic book thing. Like sure. My dad's a geek and she'll be a teenager and make fun of me for it or go the other way and, and follow right along with me and, and be really into it. And either way would be fine with me, but it's, it's just great that I'm able to share that kind of passion with her uh, mm. And hopefully, you know, that will inspire her to use her own imagination, you know, whether it's writing novels one day or making movies or, you know, whatever she ends up doing. Uh, sure. I, f- sure. I feel like this is a great way to propel her to to think creatively, to to really just be a creative spirit. And I think uh, I'm very fortunate that I have a wife who supports that idea. That's great. That's great. Yeah. That was actually a great question. Thank you for asking. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, hopefully I have many years, many, many years to come of, of sharing that with her and hopefully getting some of my own work out there that she can then go show her friends or not friends, well, look, whoever. Those, things, it, it, those moments matter. I mean, I'll tell you. So my father passed away when I was about seven or eight. And, oh, wow. Sorry uh, to hear that. Yeah, you know, things happen. Um, it, it was cancer. He just got sick. Yeah. But uh, he was a big fan of Batman. And, um, I remember, you know, he, you know, he, he bought me like the superpowers, you know, you'd like squeeze his legs and his arms would move, you know, that, yeah. that one. you remember that one with the felt cape that had a little wire, you know, hooks onto the neck, you know, and he, uh, got me a Batman and got me a Robin, you know, Robin had little green skivvies on. And, of course. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, you, you cherish that stuff. So, and I, and I say that to mean that those moments, you know, those, those moments are going to really matter. They're going to matter you know, um, the rest of her life, she's going to think about that kind of stuff. You know, the, the, the fact that her dad took the time to take her so she can be a superhero, you know, uh, in, in public. So uh, yeah, it's good I, to hear that you're I doing that kind of stuff. Certainly hope she does. Although now that you just mentioned that and, and your dad gave you Batman, and how good did that feel for you to be able to write several issues of Detective Comics and now Batman the Outsiders? Like, was that kind of like an emotional moment for you well it was it was it was a little surreal right i mean i when i so i got the call from uh or the email from chris conroy when i was on set during Titans season one and it was incredibly cold in toronto uh at the time and you know i'm missouri born but like i could play football in the missouri winter like the, the toronto cold you couldn't do anything so i'm in like a parka on top of a parka or something and I, I'm, I'm on my phone because a lot of downtime in film production. 
there's a lot of waiting on set. You got to wait for the thing to get set up. You got to wait for this other thing to happen. You got to wait for this thing to clear. It's not particularly glamorous, the actual production aspects of, of uh, you know, like filmmaking. Um, so I was checking emails, right? and uh, I saw an email from Chris Conroy, the editor, uh, who was editing Detective Comics at the time, who asked me if I'd be interested in writing a five-issue Detective Comics art. And uh, I was like, that's the one with Batman in it, right? right. You know, <laughs> like, was, like, was that an are you, are you sure moment? Or did you well, mean just this? Just to make this? sure I had, a, I had the right Detective Comics, because I didn't know if there was a second one that, you know. Because ah. I, I don't give a lot of thought to writing uh, big two characters. And, and I mean, before I'm working on a project, you know, I, I don't sit and think, here's a list of characters I would love to write and I'm aching to write these folks and so on and so forth. This is not how my mind works. It's, it's a bit like writing a screenplay for a particular actor you don't have a connection to. The likelihood of you being able to get that actor is so small that no point in taking your imagination into that place, right? Um, I see, yeah. So I don't, I don't really think about it uh, a lot. Um, but I, I assumed that you didn't get to, to Batman until you had done a lot of stuff. Uh, so I was very surprised uh, when, when they, uh, they, they asked me to do it. And, and, and I had become uh, friendly with Tom King uh, a yeah. little bit before that. Because um, I just reached out to him. I really loved Sheriff of uh, Babylon. Babylon. Yeah. Right? Like that, that, I was thinking about leaving comics. Uh, and then I read that book, and that kept me around. Um, because it, it showed me, uh, kind of renewed, I guess, my, my interest and passion in the medium. And I just talked to Tom about that. I'd like a strong advocate of that. I was like pushing it on Twitter, you know, as much as I could, because I just really love that book. Um, and so I checked in with Tom, you know, and, and kind of asked him, you know, what he thought. And he was very supportive. And, uh, Scott Snyder, I, I also met, uh, through Image because he was doing Witches and I had my book Romulus and, I bumped into him as part of the image uh, miasma and, uh, you know, reached it out and, and talked to Scott about it. And, you know, they're very supportive. And um, I thought it would be a, a, a cool, fun thing to do. But I people think that, like, from the beginning, there was some kind of plan to have a Batman and the Outsiders book. And I don't think that was true at all. I mean, we, uh, you know, they talked about Black Lightning and bringing him into it. But I think that had more to do with the character's profile rising on television, wanting to find appearances for him, places to mm -hmm. put him, you know. Right. It wasn't necessarily like we're dedicated to outsiders. Um, and I don't think DC knew that I was so fluent in Batman. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, but I, uh, I, I was, you know, I was, I was one of the, I was probably the biggest Batman fan of Missouri, you know, at one point in time. I mean, I, I probably could still sit down and recite the entire 1989 movie from beginning to end. Uh, I just, I think I've memorized that screenplay basically. Um, so yeah, I had, I had some strong opinions on Batman. I had some, some things I, you know, wanted to, to do. And I think they saw how I fell into the character and, um, and I tried to make my detective work a, another dimension of Batman, um, so that it could work with Tom's work because Tom was doing, you know, these, these poignant emotional kind of internal stories I thought it would make more sense to do more of a constructionist kind of classic Batman uh, thing because those that were reading all of the books would also see some of Tom's dimension behind the 
archetypal presentation of Batman, right? Um, I, mean, I can I definitely like, see what you're you're trying to say there. That I mean, you could feel that you were getting more of a classic story or, or more traditional Batman story over in Detective. Um, so yeah, you could feel and, that as you read it. Yeah, and 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 you know, you can still imagine that this is the same Bruce Wayne that's going through what he's going through in Tom's work. It's just that we're not we're seeing it differently from a different side of things, right? And and Outsiders is also like kind of similar to that. Like, you know, the Batman in Batman and the Outsiders is the the Batman that has to keep this initiative going, right? Right. It's you're it's it's Batman, but you're not getting Batman from Batman's point of view. You're getting Batman from their point of view, right? Which is a different way to look at the character. So, you know, uh, it. it it shocked me that they, they reached out to me uh, about writing it. Um, and it still shocks me. Like if I go to a bookstore and I see that I have a detective comics trade on the shelf, you know, I get a little giddy inside. I went to the, uh, I recently went back to St. Louis um, and there's a, uh, strangely enough, there's still a Barnes and Noble uh, at Dew Crossing over there yeah. on, um, uh, you know, off of Del Mar between yeah, Del Mar huh? and Clayton. Yeah. Yes. And, and that was my growing up. That was my bookstore. Because I, I grew up in New City. So I used to always go to that bookstore. I was the kid who would go to the comic book section, gently take a trade paperback off of the shelf, take it to the internal coffee shop, buy like a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, sit down and read that book um, right there, and then put it back because I didn't have the money to actually buy it. Um, yeah, been there. Been there many right? times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, the bookstore like a library. And I was there uh, a few weeks ago. Um, uh, and. I just walked in there and went to the shelf and saw that uh, my on the outside, you know, Detective Comics trade was there. And, and that moment of going into the same bookstore that you went into when you were like 13, 14, 15 years old, just reading things, trying to figure out how to tell a story, seeing one of your stories on a shelf uh, in that bookstore is, is a pretty strong moment. You know, it was kind of a yeah. lyrical moment. Um, that would almost be surreal to me in my mind. Yeah, I can't imagine. It was very, it was very, very odd, you know. Um, uh, and all you can feel for that is gratitude. So, um, you know, being able to be uh, such a you know small part of of the Batman legacy, as it were, uh, is great. And I'm super grateful to DC Comics for giving me that opportunity. Yeah, I can only imagine. If I could get into uh, my local comic shop that I've been going to since I was probably 10, uh, and I could get in there and see my name on anything on any of the shelves for sale, one, I'd probably buy them out of it, and two, it would be very, very uh, surreal, and I think gratitude probably is the word I would, I would go looking for. But Oh, yeah, you'll get there. I mean, I'll, I'll be, you know, to anyone listening to this, I know it can seem unfathomable, you know, trying to find a method to get a career going. But I, I will share this, and I mean this in 100% honesty. I have never known anyone to have consistently done good work, pushed their work to get better, and shared that work who did not eventually get a career going. That's just good, uh, reassuring, reassuring news there. I really appreciate you sharing that, Brian. Yeah, I mean, some people slip and fall into it, you know, early on. You know, some people flame out, you know, quickly and all that. But I've never known anyone to have consistent work who's always uh, 
working on a new thing, pushing themselves, learning a new thing, and then sharing the work, which is the most important part of it. You got to share the work you create. Got to let it out. Got to let it out. I've never known someone to do that uh, and and never get a foothold in. It might take a little more time, you know, and some people get get in faster than others. But uh, I, with confidence, I can say that if one does that and genuinely applies themselves to it um, and remains humble and positive and doesn't, you know, word bomb their career on Twitter, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you can get there for sure. You can definitely get there. Fantastic. Listen, Brian, I, I honestly cannot thank you enough uh, for taking time out of your, I'm sure, a very busy schedule to talk with us today. Oh, thank uh, you. It was, uh, uh, it was pleasant uh, having the conversation, man, um, and um, all the success uh, to you with, uh, with the podcast and glad well, to I, see new voices in the, in the medium. I really appreciate it, and uh, thank you very much, and congratulations to you and all of your success, and I'm sure continued success. Uh, but before we go, is there anything that you'd like to to plug? Anything we should be on the lookout for coming up shortly? Mm, I mean, you know, we've sort of talked about it. Fallen Angels is, mm-hmm. uh, I know, still happening, and issue two would be out at the end of November. Um, Batman and the Outsiders is still going. Um, Angel, the adaptation, well, not really adaptation, kind of a reimagining of the television series. I'm writing that for Boom. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm proud of that work. I think it's some decent work there. That's out there. Um, and if anyone would like to follow me and get kind of up-to-the-minute updates of what I'm doing, uh, just follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's at Brian Edward Hill. That's Brian with a Y, at Brian Edward Hill. Um, and add me there. I keep my DMs open. If you have writing questions, you can you know, hit me up with them. I don't get back to everyone immediately, but I do get back to everyone eventually. Um, but besides that, uh, look forward to a third season of Titans. Um, and uh, I've got uh, a few more announcements that should be uh, coming along before the end of the year, um, or in the future film space. But um, we will cross our fingers and uh, uh, see you know, what I can talk about when I can talk about it. All right. Very exciting stuff. Happy to hear that. We will keep our eyes and ears peeled for it. Uh, also, I can attest to the Twitter responsiveness. If you talk to Brian, he will respond to you. And he, it's engaging, too. It's not just a quick, hey, man, thanks, tweet. He will really talk to you. So uh, don't be afraid to tweet at him and go check out his work. Otherwise, Brian, again, thank you very much. And if you ever make it back to St. Louis, you have a standing invitation for me to either buy you a coffee or a Johnny Walker at your favorite spot in you city. Oh, for sure. We'll have to make that happen, man. Um, I would. I would uh, be I'll, over I'll the moon. I'll let you know when I'm, when I'm, when I'm traveling. I, I usually go in for the holidays uh for a little while so um i'll uh, i'll let you know and then uh, we go over blueberry hill <laughs> oh that would be great um and, and then we could have we could have the in-depth st louis conversation <laughs> we'll we'll <laughs> have we toasted have. raviolis and thin pizza and we'll oh, talk yeah, about man. it yeah man you city loop you know a lot of my tragic failures and, and social successes have happened in that place i tell you what there's a lot of great places that used to be there and some good ones that are still there that we'll have to have to talk about and hit up, even though we can't go to Star Clipper uh, right. down there anymore. But we could go visit the Wash Ave location. So yeah, you can visit the Wash the Wash Ave location. You can also go to Wizards Wagon. My friend Fleet works there. Oh um, yeah. Uh, little here's a here's a little fun fact. So Fleet Delmar in my Detective Comics arc is an homage to my friend Fleet, who uh, is just a great great fella, and he works at Wizards Wagon down there on Delmar. Um, so if you're in St. Louis and you're 
looking for books, make sure you stop in the Wizard's Wagon and argue with Fleet about why Batman is awesome. Definitely. I'm sure he would appreciate that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, again, thank you very much. Uh, we look forward to uh, hearing from you again and also everything that's coming out that you've got that you're working on. So right on. Appreciate talking to you. All right, so there you have it. That was the first ever Galactic Dads podcast interview. We'd like to again thank Brian Edward Hill for helping us out and being so gracious with his time. Thank you so much. If you guys want to follow him, again, hit him up on Twitter. He is at Brian Edward Hill. That is Brian with a Y. He is very responsive and is great to talk to. Also be on the lookout. He'll be dropping some news about what he's got coming up in the new year on there very soon. And also, Fallen Angels number two from Marvel uh, is coming out on Wednesday, November 27th. So be sure to pick that up. And also, look for the season two finale of DC Universe's Titans. If you want to watch Dick Grayson go toe to toe with Deathstroke while he's dressed as Nightwing, then that is the show for you. I will definitely be watching it. And if you would love to hit us up, we are at Galactic Dads on Twitter and Instagram. So please rate, review, subscribe, and share. Every little bit helps. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Music Play, and also Stitcher. And of course, on SoundCloud. So hit us up, check us out, and we can't wait to hear from you. And we will see you all on the next episode.